Welcome everybody. Greetings to all of you who love Mother Earth, who love all who dwell within her awe-inspiring and sacred biosphere. I welcome you to this All Creation podcast. I'm Tom Vandestep, a co-founder of allcreation.org. Thanks so much for joining us as we explore this edition's topic, Restoring Connective Tissue. In this podcast, we welcome Jeremy Lent. Jeremy is the author of two books, both of which I highly recommend, and he's launched a global network called the Deep Transformation Network, which is connecting people from all around the globe who are seeking to respond to our planet's ecological crisis through a process of deep transformation that's both personal and systemic. Jeremy's first book was The Patterning Instinct, a cultural history of humanity's search for meaning. In it, Jeremy explores how we human beings, in our need to understand the world and our place in it, have gone about the task of constructing meaning for ourselves by observing and interpreting the natural patterns we see here on Earth and in the cosmos. And key to our conversation today, Jeremy describes how different human communities at different times in our history and in different places here on Earth have constructed radically different systems of meaning or worldviews, with some being far more in tune with how life actually flourishes here on Earth and others being far more damaging to life on Earth. His follow-up book is The Web of Meaning, Integrating Science and Traditional Wisdom to Find Our Place in the Universe. In this book, Jeremy weaves together wisdom from ancient China's Buddhist, Taoist, and Neo-Confucian sages, from traditional indigenous wisdom, and from contemporary systems in complexity science. Jeremy integrates this spiritual wisdom and contemporary science in order to critique the current dominant worldview that's driving our ecological crisis and to promote a different way of understanding the world and our place in it. One that can help us live into what he calls an ecological civilization that respects the integrity of the entire biosphere and every member of it, and makes the flourishing of life on earth humanity's top priority. So in this conversation, we are going to talk about our current ecological crisis, how serious it is, as well as the systems institutions, and underlying worldview that's causing it. Then we'll talk about the vision for an ecological civilization and how the Deep Transformation Network is connecting people from all over the world around that vision. And finally, we will encourage you to explore the Deep Transformation Network and to join it if you're so moved. So Jeremy, I'm so pleased to have you in this conversation today. As I was reading your two books, I kept saying to Chris Searles, co-founder of All Creation and director of Biointegrity, Chris, you've got to read this guy, Jeremy Lent. He's synthesizing and integrating so much valuable information, all the spiritual, scientific, economic, political, and cultural stuff that we're always talking about. So again, Jeremy, welcome. Well, thank you so much, Tom. Thanks for that wonderful welcome to your show. And yeah, I'm really looking forward to having a, a deep conversation with you on all of these topics that you just mentioned. Thank you. 
Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. Uh, I, I think what I'd like to do is start off with a reality check mm. and to get a sense of your view uh, regarding how serious mm. the ecological crisis is. And let me frame it this way. I'm sure you know, I'm sure you read The Guardian. The Guardian mm. has been reporting lately on this phenomenon called carbon bombs. Yeah. The fossil fuel industry's massive investment into brand new projects to extract fossil fuels that'll lock us into emitting billions of tons of greenhouse gases, propelling us beyond not only 1.5 centigrade, but two degrees and higher. The UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres says, fossil fuels are killing us. Yes. And that the world mm -hmm. is now in code red. Yes. And that's just global heating. That doesn't even take into account the massive assault on life and Earth's living systems. Yes. So from your perspective, are we in code red? Oh, yes, we're definitely, I'd say we're in code uh, flashing red. Because, you know, what's, what's even more terrifying is even the, the stuff that we get to read about from the IPCC and the UN, if anything, understates where we may be headed or where we're likely uh, headed this century because of this whole issue of amplifying feedbacks, which means that as we get past that one and a half degree Celsius temperature rise towards two degrees, there's all these things start happening with weather systems that can actually kick off new drivers that can lead us quite quickly from a two degree world to a three degree world. And scientists, serious, sober scientists from around the world now are absolutely just calling out with alarm because what they're trying to tell the rest of the world is that we're entering a zone where our very civilization is at risk. If we continue on this path this century, there's many people, an increasing number of people. And again, these are not sort of uh, um, collapsitarians or whatever, but serious scientists who are realizing this is not compatible with a global civilization. And to your point, and I think this is the most important point, the whole climate disaster that we're heading to right now, even that is just a symptom of a deeper underlying problem, which is this ecological devastation that our global civilization is causing to the earth right now. So even if somebody came up with some sort of magic bullet, hard to even conceive of right now, but that could somehow shift the direction of the actual rise in temperatures to sort of come back down towards at least a 1.5 steady state or something, even then, that would just be kicking the can down the road a little bit because we're dealing with all these other issues like deforestation, destruction of life in the ocean, total devastation. Coral reefs almost certainly going to be wiped out, literally wiped out this century, even if things start to improve. Everywhere we look, the massive water shortages where the UN predicts that billions of people will be facing severe water stress like by the middle of the century. It goes on and on. So we have to look at the deeper underlying issue. There's something absolutely out of balance that has to be brought back into balance. So climate change is not the only issue. It's really a massive assault on Earth and all her living systems yes. that we're talking about. And as you look ahead 10 years from now, 20 years from now, at all the processes we've already put into place and set off, I mean, what 
degree of political and economic disruption do you envision and how much human suffering? Well, I mean, if, if things continue even close to the path they're on right now, then we're going to be looking at some of the more, more apocalyptic situations in human history. The question is, how bad are they going to get and how quickly? But you know, oftentimes people focus on some of the more extreme and obvious elements of climate breakdown, like massive heat waves or droughts or floods or like huge mega hurricanes. All those are very real. All those affect people directly. But I think some of the greatest systemic impacts are the incredible famines that can get caused. And the fact that large swaths of the earth will literally be unlivable, leading to like massive climate refugee crises, where basically we're talking about like things that Europe and Syria and some of these countries have been experiencing in the last few years, multiply that by 10 or 100 times. We're looking at food crises, where literally people will be unable to even feed themselves. So we're, we're looking at situations where people won't even have access to water. And those situations, of course, lead very quickly to military conflicts, to unraveling of political norms. And that's where basically element of our civilization, everything from a global trade to our electric grids, to internet, to all the different things we're used to, based on an incredibly complex and fragile set of deep interconnections. As these things start to unravel, that's why people are really worried about our civilization itself being under attack, not just uh, like something like COVID where, oh yeah, we're impacted a little bit. We can think of something like COVID as being like this little um, miniature dress rehearsal for what we can expect coming unless we look at deep transformation. Because the point is that even though what I've described is so dire, I believe that we can shift the direction of where we're heading this century, but only if we look long and hard at what is really causing this problem and shift the deep underlying um, systemic issues around that rather than try to fix a few things superficially. Well, let's start to talk about that a bit then some of the systemic and institutional causes, and then we'll go a bit deeper into the underlying worldviews and assumptions that are so deeply ingrained, particularly in the West, where they originated, but now globally. One of the things that I really appreciate about your writing and your speaking is calling out capitalism. Mm -hmm. You know, here in America, it's almost as if capitalism is sacrosanct. And there is an attitude among a lot of people that without capitalism, America is no longer America. Mm -hmm. That capitalism and America are just one in the same. And yet you're very critical of capitalism and really call capitalism and neoliberalism and corporations out for being drivers of this. Talk a bit about that. Yeah, so I think that's absolutely true. And we, uh, we do need to recognize really that capitalism is, it's a bit like the elephant in the room that everyone's kind of trying to squeeze themselves around and try to look at the very limited space that's left and not mention that there's this big elephant that's actually the vast part of what they're actually dealing with. And I think what we need to recognize is one very simple and clear uh, part of what I'm talking about 
is that capitalism itself is built on the requirement for continued growth, continued growth in profits and growth in shareholder returns. And the whole system is built on that way. So that, you know, when companies are valued in the stock market, they're based on a price to earnings ratio, which looks at their current earnings and says, okay, let's multiply that by 20 for what they're really worth, because look how much they're going to grow in the future. So if the expected growth rate just even slightly gets reduced, suddenly the stock price crashes. The whole system is built around grow, grow, grow. And it has been like that ever since capitalism began a few hundred years ago with the first corporations back in Europe in the 17th century or so. And the point about that is it's based on always trying to then exploit and extract everything as fast as possible from the rest of life on earth. So the thing is, one of the implications of that is that you can't just keep growing at this rate without leading to these problems we're having. So right now, all the devastation we're looking at in the world is a, based on a certain amount of gross, global gross domestic product. That's expected to triple by 2060. You, it's just boggles the mind to imagine triple the amount of consumption use, the amount of emissions, all this stuff. And there are some people who come up with this idea it's a, a very common sort of meme out there of green growth. Well, what we need to do is use technology to basically decouple our material use and pollution and stuff from GDP growth. And people try to claim it's possible by looking at certain numbers. But studies have shown that if you look at the whole global system, the actual material consumption and growth in GDP tracked almost exactly um, for decades with almost no variation, um, zero basically decoupling going on. This is the issue we need to recognize. And there's a reason for that, because under capitalism, if somebody does come up with an improvement in something, like say I find a way to make renewables even more efficient or you know, a, a new source of energy for far cheaper, consuming fewer resources, under this system, investors immediately pour into that new technology and say, oh, now we can use it for this and that. And they can increase, actually expand the amounts of stuff available because they found a new efficient way of doing something. It's actually got a name in classical economics. It's called the Jevons Paradox, because there was a, an economist in the 19th century in England who first discovered that about what steam engine, which was one of the sort of first steps in the Industrial Revolution. And it was a way to basically extract coal far more efficiently than it had been before. So at first, people thought, oh, good, that way we can use less energy to extract the same amounts of coal. But to everyone's surprise, people use more energy to extract massive more amounts of coal, leading, of course, to the Industrial Revolution. That's the paradox. So endless growth on a finite planet just doesn't work. That's right, exactly. And that's what it's so difficult for people to get their heads around because we're so used to thinking about the system the way it is now. People go, well, we can't stop that. I mean, what would happen? There's this famous phrase that goes around, Slavov Zizek um, is the person who it's attributed to, saying that it's easier for most people to visualize the end of the world than it is the end of capitalism. And I believe that is largely true, but that doesn't necessarily have to be true. And this is a point. There are other ways in which we can organize ourselves politically, economically, financially, 
that doesn't have to be based on this endless growth. Right. And we'll, we'll get into that in a bit when we talk about the Deep Transformation Network and the people all around the world who are seeing this pretty clearly. Another thing I really appreciate is you don't just deal, though, on that systemic institutional level. You really go down into a deep cultural history and look at the way that we have made meaning of the world in the West and how problematic that is and how that has led to what you've just described. Yeah. Especially dualistic thinking, reductionist mm -hmm. science. That is so important. So if you would talk a bit about that and the history yeah. behind that and how that has gotten us to this place. Yeah, well, Tom, I'm so glad you're, you're talking about that because a lot of my work, in fact, over years has been to look at the underlying reasons for why we're in this place. And a lot of what I focus my attention on is recognizing that different cultures choose their actions and their focus based primarily on the worldview that they have. And worldview is something we're not even aware of for the most part. Basically, a worldview refers to the way in which we make sense of everything around us, the way we frame it, and how we determine how things work and what doesn't work, what's valuable and what's not, how we should live our lives, the fundamentals of our life. And we can think of a worldview a little bit like a lens through which you see something. So in just the same way that like, we look at the world through the lens in our eye, but until a biologist tells us that we have a lens in our eye, we don't realize that. We just think that's reality. And in fact, of course, the lens actually does all kinds of things to change the way the lights come through our eye so that we perceive it in a certain way. Similarly, a worldview patterns meaning into the world around us in a way that we think is reality. But when only when we look at different worldviews do we understand, oh, actually, there's other ways we can make sense of things. So they look fundamentally different. And when we look at worldviews, what we recognize is that the, our dominant worldview is one that actually arose from the time of the scientific revolution in Europe, like hundreds of years ago now. But it's formed the bedrock of what we take for granted, what we think is right. But here's what's so fascinating. Modern science actually shows us in recent decades that some of the things we all, almost all of us take for granted are in fact not right at all. They're actually flawed. So just to give you a sense of what I'm talking about by some of these, these elements. In our dominant worldview, we think that, for example, humans are separate from nature. There's something fundamentally different about humans than the rest of nature. We think that even as humans, we're split between a mind and a body, that we have some sort of mind that is somehow maybe connects us with spirituality or consciousness or something, and our body is this kind of physical thing that our mind is housed in. So that's part of what we call dualism. And um, we also think that humans are basically selfish, that we're separate individuals and we're selfish separate individuals. And not just the humans are selfish, but we think that nature is selfish. And most people think this is scientifically shown by biology, that there's a selfish gene that has determined evolution. And so basically all of nature is just this kind of cutthroat fight between different species and humans outcompeted the rest, which is why we're a top dog. And the reason capitalism works was because it makes this way of everyone by pursuing their own selfish ends, 
can do it most efficiently in a market-driven capitalism. And that's why the system's worked so well for the last few hundred years. That's what most people believe ultimately is kind of what our, our world is about. Every one of those things I've just said have been shown by findings in modern science to be absolutely wrong. And once we begin to realize that, we can open our minds to a different way of making sense of things based much more on a sense of deep interconnectedness rather than the sense of separation that we get from the dominant worldview. So in this dualistic thinking, you know, humans have come to see themselves as separate from nature and they view only themselves as having any intelligence. And yes. that nature has absolutely no intelligence. If, if anything, it's just a machine. That's, That's the, right. the metaphor that we've come to use, that nature is just a machine. And if nature has no intrinsic value, then we can just continue to exploit it. That's right. And you hit upon a, a key element that it's not even that we're sort of better than nature or essentially different, but nature doesn't even have a lived existence. And that mechanical metaphor of nature was one that was existing a little bit prior to the scientific revolution. But during that period, the great breakthroughs of science were from that time. People like Galileo and Newton and Copernicus and Descartes, they all were fascinated by looking at this idea that if we think of nature as a machine, we can break it down to its tiny little parts. And by doing that, we can then end up making sense of things. And that was a, a basically a program under science that was called reductionism. And reductionism worked incredibly well. It was actually, to their credit, a great success. And it was that breaking things down into little parts that led to all the breakthroughs we've experienced over hundreds of years and understanding things like electricity and the germ theory of disease and some of the greatest breakthroughs in human knowledge we've ever had. So um, there's no way in which I'm saying there's something fundamentally wrong with that. But what happened was because of the success of that way of looking at nature, people began to mistake this metaphor that was very effective with the entire universe. So you got this notion of through reductionism of the sense that nature literally was a machine. It wasn't just like a machine to, to um, use in certain ways. And that the only way to make sense of anything was to break it down into these little parts. And any other way of making sense of things had to be mistaken or wrong or woo-woo or just um, made no sense. So people now, nowadays think that science is that reductionist approach. But in fact, that's not true. And in fact, there are many sciences have developed even as far back as the last hundred or more years, but certainly the last few decades, which look at the connections between things and realize that a lot of the ways in which we really understand the world arise from how we look at how they connect up rather than by breaking them down to their separate parts. This is a systems orientation to the world. And that doesn't reject reductionism in any which way, but it says in addition to breaking things down, we need to look at how they connect up to really make sense of things. And that's what's fascinating is that new way of looking at things actually leads us to recognizing deep validity in many spiritual traditions. 
that arose thousands of years ago, where these traditions that talked about the deep interconnectedness about life, but got kind of thrown out as kind of, uh, you know, old woo-woo stuff by what seemed to be hardcore modern science. But now we recognize actually there's deep validity to that. Yeah, well, let's, let's start talking about that a bit. You know, Joanna Macy has written that we live in a time when a new view of reality is emerging, where spiritual insight and scientific discovery both contribute to our understanding of ourselves as intimately interwoven with our world. And that's really the task that you've set out to accomplish is to show how this spiritual wisdom, which is really quite ancient, I mean, human beings have known our interconnectivity for quite some time, and how contemporary systems and complexity sciences showing that what these sages knew is true. Talk more about that, about the wisdom that you've drawn from, from ancient China, from indigenous people from around the world, and also what you're learning from system and complexity science. Yes, for sure. Well, maybe a good place to begin is with this um, statement I made just a few minutes back about how modern systems sciences show how the connections between things are often more important than the things themselves. And that's sometimes a difficult thing for somebody in our modern worldview to get their head around. Well, how can that be? It's the, it's the things that actually matter, isn't it? So one way of, of thinking about it is um, to consider uh, like say something like a candle flame. And if you look at that flame, it looks like it's kind of stable, right? You know, you, um, you look at it and you look at it a few seconds later, it's just the same flame is there. But basically every molecule in that flame is different. So the actual stuff it's made of is changing, but the way in which those molecules interrelate with each other, with the wax and with the wick and with the oxygen, that's what actually keeps the stability going. And what's fascinating is we can even see this is true if we think about ourselves, like something that's an interesting thing to do is to take a moment and consider a photograph of yourself when you were a little child. We've all got some sort of favorite picture that we can think of about that. And when you think about that picture, you know that person is you, that little kid. But basically, what is fascinating to realize is there's not a single molecule that made up the physical being of that little kid that is in you now. Most of our cells are always changing and are already different. There are a few cells that actually remain in us all through our lives, but even those cells are continually changing the molecules that they actually use to formulate themselves. So the question is, what is it that relates you to that little kid in that photograph? The answer is it's the ways in which all of those molecules within the cells and the cells related to each other. It's the relationships between all the different elements that actually retain a robustness and a stability and a coherence that actually is our true identity. That's what actually stays in us all the time. And that's the relationships. And that's what modern systems biology and complexity science explores is to understand those relationships. And what's fascinating to your point about traditional wisdom is that even though in the West, we're just beginning to uncover the importance of these connections, traditional ways of making sense of things always focused on these connections. So in early China, for example, 
about a thousand years ago, there was this um, powerful school of thought. We know it nowadays as Neo-Confucianism during the Song Dynasty, about a thousand years ago. And they integrated three of the great Chinese traditions from the past, Buddhism and Taoism and Confucianism. And they looked at a universe that consisted of all the stuff of the universe that they called qi. Some people might have heard that word. Qi refers to basically matter and or energy, all the stuff basically uh, that is in the universe. But they said equally important was what they called li. And li refers to those organizing principles, the principles by which all that qi relates to each other. And in their conception, you can't have the stuff, the qi, without the li because the Li basically organizes all that stuff. And similarly, the Li can't exist without the Qi, they require each other. And so when we look at systems thinking, it's saying something similar, that you don't have the universe without all the stuff that reductionist science looks at. It actually can't exist in the complex ways we look at the world without those relationships. Right, right, right. You know, one thing that I really love that you do when you contrast the, say, the Neo-Confucian view of the world versus our Western view of the world, you contrast this notion of gay Wu, mm -hmm. which was the study of the way things are, the study of nature, so that we can harmonize with it. Yes. Contrast that to, say, Francis Bacon, who sought to study nature so we can conquer nature and control yes. nature and extract from nature. Exactly. And just the radical, radical difference in these yes. two worldviews and the different trajectories then that these two cultures have taken. Yes, you're, that's completely right. And that's a, a great uh, contrast between those two traditions. Because, you know, people might be hearing what I'm saying, and, so we'll, we'll, and then think, well, so what? What, is, what does that actually imply? But you really hit the nail on the head with that, that our modern... A scientific worldview looks at nature with the intention to control it, to basically conquer nature. Like that's one of these, one of those prophets of the scientific age. He mentioned Francis Bacon, and he put out this clarion call. He said, "We can conquer nature. We can basically, you know, torture its secrets out of her, and that way we can know what to do." And at the time, that was a revolutionary, exciting, wonderful thing that uh, caused so much benefit. But that's what's leading to this destruction of nature right now. It's no surprise that that view of conquering nature arose right at the same time of the, um, basically the legal institution of the modern uh, for-profit corporation and the basic economic system of capitalism. Because capitalism, if you will, is almost like the economic manifestation of the worldview that says nature is a machine. Because if nature is a machine, and if basically we're called on to conquer nature and to um, like use it to our benefit, then well, if we let's if you organize an economic system around that, that will be capitalism. Basically, uh, the very word itself comes from this recognition that there's capital, which is the foundation of what we use to then earn a return on everything else that's outside of the capital. Essentially, that we can exploit and extract for the benefit of increasing capital. So sort of capitalism is really the economic manifestation of this worldview of extraction and separation. But this Wu that you were talking about, the, the traditional Chinese thought looked at, they, they looked at 
when they wanted to understand nature, they were equally curious. And there was great science that developed in China, very sophisticated science, all about trying to find out ways to harmonize with nature for the benefit of humans and not necessarily destroying the natural world around them, but actually looking at creating a harmonic structure where everyone benefited. And this is, again, one of the great insights now that modern science shows that both indigenous wisdom and Chinese wisdom was pointing to, which is life itself has evolved on that basis. And we, I talked earlier about how we believe from our dominant worldview that life evolved through competition and the selfish gene, <clears throat> this idea that got put out by Richard Dawkins some decades back. Modern biology has shown that that is fundamentally untrue. That in fact, if you look at the evolution of life over billions of years on earth since it first began, there have only been a few big phase transitions in the complexity of life from uh, single um, simple cells to complex cells to um, multicellular beings to mammals, like all, all the, the few big shifts. Every one of those shifts arose not through different species outcompeting the others, but learning how they could work in a, what is called mutually beneficial symbiosis with other species where they take their specialist skills and apply them where the other species can gain from them and they gain from the other species. And that is what we get from life today. If we walk in, in, in a forest today, that symbiosis is all around us from trees and photosynthesizing the sun's energy to give it to all the animals who then transport their seeds and then um, refertilize them through their waste products and the fungal network underground that actually um, gives trees extra elements that they need and the trees use that fungal elements, uh, th that fungal network to transmit nutrients to other trees around. The whole thing is a symbiotic ecosystem. And if we can start to look at our human relationship with the rest of nature, not as how can we conquer it, how can we exploit it, but how can we be back in symbiosis with it, then we have a chance of shifting our trajectory. It, it, it kind of seems that uh, by separating ourselves from nature, the way we have that we're separating ourselves from reality itself, Mm. <clears throat> which is which is really a kind of madness. I mean, there's an a, there's a Buddhist environmentalist, Susan Murphy, who says that until we can glimpse ourselves in that vibrant, seamless web of interconnectedness, we are living in a kind of madness. That is to say, not living in reality. Yeah, and it's it's this kind of madness and not living in reality that is driving the actual reality to be harmed. Yeah. I think that's completely right. Or sometimes people will call it a consensus trance, which I think is a very powerful way of looking at it, that everyone else is going around in this trance. And so we go, oh, I guess this is, this is our reality. And that separation is a little bit like an anesthesia. It, it's as though our consumer culture is kind of feeding us this continual drip of a, a sort of anesthesia of consciousness that numbs us to our, our actual reality that causes us to just kind of live in this kind of dulled sort of consumer hedonic treadmill rather than actually connecting with what really matters in our lives. And that's not just happenstance. 
that actually is part of the whole mindset of consumer-driven capitalism to make people always basically take their life's energy and use it for the purpose of always needing more and buying more and working harder so they can achieve more. So basically people themselves become almost like rats on the wheel, essentially almost like consumer zombies being used by this system to stay in this consensus trance and stay away from their true reality. There's actually a fascinating way of understanding that by actually taking another glimpse at that traditional Chinese way of thinking I was talking about before from Neo-Confucianism, who looked at the Li, those connecting principles between things. And they had a concept that they called Ren, which is written in English as R-E-N, like Ren. And to them, Ren basically meant this kind of profound sense of this deep interconnectedness of all life, this recognition that each of us as human beings are, have all these different systems of life within us and are part of this web of all life. And that led to a sense of a kind of unconditional love, almost like a loving kindness, a sense of the sanctity of everything around them. But what's fascinating is that the word for the opposite of Ren in Chinese is buren, which basically means no ren. But that word buren in modern Chinese means anesthesia. Mm -hmm. And when you think about what that means, basically, if you give somebody like a local anesthetic because you're working on their teeth, you give them the anesthetic and then you can touch their gum, but they don't know that they're being touched because they can't feel it. But the touch is real, but they're just totally unaware of it. So we can get that metaphor of buren, the sense of anesthesia, as basically being that our modern society feeds us with this anesthetic drip that we are deeply connected. So it's not like we have to sort of, um, uh, sort of get ourselves connected. All we need to do is open ourselves up to actually feel what is actually happening around us. And all of a sudden, a different world opens up to us, a world of love, a world of a greater identity, sharing with community, with all of humanity, with all of life. And all of a sudden, everything can look different and meaning can begin to infuse our lives rather than the sense of consumer-driven meaninglessness. So this love you're talking about is really just a natural organic process that happens. It's not a rule to follow. Just by reconnecting, that love for others and nature that we're connected to, just it's there. Yes. It's there. It's not something yeah. we have to do. It's that Wu Wei that it, the Taoists speak of. That that's exactly exactly right, Tom. And you know, oftentimes like say um, serious scientific writers talking about say neuroscience or complexity science, whatever, will be scared to talk about words like love or spirituality or stuff because they'll be afraid that they'll be accused as getting woo woo and not serious or whatever. But from a systems understanding, we can even define things like love and spirituality from that recognition of the deep connectedness of things. So in fact, in my book, The Web of Meaning towards the later part of the book, I actually kind of describe love really, we can understand love as being really like the realization and embrace of that connectedness. That when we open our eyes to that connectedness, kind of embrace it with our being, that is love. And that can be love expressed in terms of just one relationship with another person, a, a close relationship. It can be a more sort of general love 
of all other human beings, of all of life. We can look at it at all these different fractal layers, but it's all about this recognition of connectedness, of what is within us, with everything that is outside of what we conventionally see as us. So it seems like one of the first steps, or perhaps the first step of reconnecting to the biosphere is reconnecting to our own bodies, because that's the first line of separation, the disconnect from our own bodies. I think that is very, very true. And when we talked about this kind of a dualistic worldview earlier, like this dominant worldview we have, again, it doesn't just say that humans are separate from the rest of nature. It also says that I am somehow separate from my body. And that came from Descartes, uh, again, who's got that famous quote, the foundation of Western philosophy, cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. And if you think about what that's actually saying, it's saying that thinking capacity that enables me to sort of think symbolically and be aware of myself and all that stuff, that's the only thing that actually is fundamentally my identity. And the other stuff of me, like my body, doesn't really have a full identity, just the way that another animal must be a machine, they don't have an identity. But again, this is where modern science shows how fundamentally wrong that is. In fact, what we now know from cognitive neuroscience is those thinking capacities, for starters, are something that is shared to varying degrees with many other mammals all around the world. And secondly, that it's actually not the only part of our existence, that we have deep animate intelligence within us. And what we really are as human beings is a combined conceptual consciousness that allows us to think in those symbolic ways and what we can think of as our animate consciousness, our embodied wisdom, which actually is the vast bulk of what we are as, as human organisms and is also a gateway to connect us with the rest of life because some of the deepest elements of what we have within our bodies are what we share with all of life. And again, modern science validates that. If you look at genetic science, we now understand that about half of the genes we see in a banana are shared with us. Like um, we look at something as separate from us as a banana and about half of our genes are shared. And even higher percentages, obviously, with every other creature around like flies or not to mention high functioning mammals with whom we share massive amounts of our genetic structure. And that's not just a gee whiz fact. What that basically points to is that the way in which our bodies organize themselves, the way in which they actually are coherent and allow us to have awareness and consciousness are deeply similar as in biology, the term deep homology, meaning like the, the deep history of our evolution is shared with all these other creatures around us. Well, that now raises a moral issue. If we share this animate intelligence and knowledge with all of the other life here on Earth, it raises serious moral issues. For example, how we raise animals in our industrial food system and yes. the cruelty, the cruelty with which we treat other animals. Talk a bit now about your vision of ecological civilization and the morality behind that and the underlying values that underpin that ecological civilization. 
Yes, yeah, I'd be happy to. And, and, but, and maybe before I begin talking about the ecological civilization itself, let me just reaffirm what you just said, Tom, about the horrendous moral implications of things like factory farming. Once we realize that other animals, far from being machines, like people like Descartes thought, are actually sentient, feeling beings. And in fact, that any animal that has a nervous system, basically, and a brain capable of cognizing, which means basically the chickens and cows and pigs that we put in those factory farms, those are animals that suffer. And they may not think in the same way that we do, and they may not be able to write poems about their suffering or anything like that, but they are suffering in every bit just as terrible a way from torture and a diminishment of their own life possibilities as we humans would. And so we have to recognize that this kind of factory farming that goes on and other ways in which we treat animals as basically um, just for our own benefits, not considering their beings, there is a deep, a profound moral implication to that. It's quite possible that what we've done with factory farming, where 80 billion animals every year are, are tortured and slaughtered for our benefit, is perhaps the greatest amount of suffering that has ever been caused on this planet Earth since life began billions of years ago. We have to face up to that. And so to your point about ecological civilization, it's basically it's that it transforms the way we look at life and how we can organize life in a way that rather than looking at everything from the point of view of extraction and exploitation, such as our current civilization does, it looks at life itself as the basis for how we can actually construct our society. So the reason it's called an ecological civilization, and I should say, by the way, that term is not my term. It's a term that's used by many profound thinkers around the world and has been for a number of years now. I have totally embraced it. When I came across it, it was like, yes, because I, I felt it was um, the perfect phrase that got a sense of the depth by which we need to change things. That it's not just like um, looking at an ecological economy or um, an ecological culture. It's looking at an ecological civilization. We have to transform the civilization itself, but it captures the way in which we can transform it towards basically these principles of life. Um, because if you look at ecologies, basically ecosystems, what we discover is that ecosystems are based on principles that have allowed them to be not just sustainable, but flourishing and resilient in many cases for millions of years through changes in climate, through all kinds of disruptions, these ecosystems can accommodate that and stay healthy and resilient. And the notion of an ecological civilization is to start off by saying, what are the principles that we can learn from nature that we can apply to human society and our own way of organizing that we could maybe allow our civilization to also be one that could be sustainable, allow for full flourishing into the indefinite future. So in your book, you note a number of these principles by which life self-organizes. Mm -hmm. And so by basing a new civilization on how life actually functions and how life organizes and how life flourishes, we're getting back in tune with reality itself. But if you would, identify some of these principles. 
Yes, yeah, sure. Those are um, uh, fundamental. So perhaps the most important principle is one that we touched on earlier in this conversation is essentially that secret that life came across when it evolved its complexity over the billions of years it's been on Earth, which um, basically is mutually beneficial symbiosis, which essentially, which makes sense when you think about it. If one species is basically extracting and taking advantage of another species, that's not going to work out too well over the long term, because either the other species will fight back, find a way to fight back, or it'll just die out, and look, it's all over kind of thing. But when different species work out, oh, I can offer this specialized skill to you, and you offer your specialized skill to me, and it works for both of us, that's, that's a marriage made in heaven, and that can last um, indefinitely. So when you apply that to society, Basically, it moves away from this sort of capitalist system where essentially groups are trying to exploit and extract as much as they can from other groups in society. Where if you can take advantage of a group, then you're doing well, and then you just get more strength. So then you take advantage of that group even more so, and then the group tries to fight back. And so everything is about competition and basically exploitation. So with mutually beneficial symbiosis, we'd be looking at a society where different skills got actually synergized to work together for the benefit of all, where basically every single group, every individual within a society, rather than getting exploited, could actually contribute for the benefit of the society as a whole. So that's one fundamental principle. A separate one that is very close to that, but actually expands in a different direction, is that when we look at the way nature evolved, it evolved fractally. And some people may be familiar with the word fractal. You know, those kind of core patterns. Basically, fractals are patterns that repeat themselves at different scales. So you see that in things like lightning, the branching of the, like the bronchioles in our lungs or neurons in the brain or coastlines. You see it everywhere in nature because they show basically self-organized activity. Neurons in the brain or coastlines. You see it everywhere in nature because they show basically self-organized activity. And ecosystems work fractally where different systems work according to a particular set of patterns and then are part of bigger systems. So just like you have cells are part of an organism, which are part of a species, which are part of the whole population. And similarly, what that means if we apply that to human society is that the health of each part requires the health of the entire system. And the health of the entire system can only be truly flourishing if all the different parts are themselves healthy. And we know that about our own bodies. We know that if something, if I've got difficulty with an organ, like say my liver or whatever, that's going to affect different parts of my system. So that might make me feel a bit weaker and then I won't get to exercise so much, which can then affect my lungs, which can then affect um, my heart. And so all the different systems interact with each other. If we apply that to human society, then we recognize that our society can only truly flourish when we look to each of the different parts and make sure that they're flourishing. So those are two principles. Yeah, again, it's paying attention to all the connections that are connecting us on multiple levels. Right. Yeah, exactly. yeah. Well, we started out by talking about the dire trajectory that we're on, and we know that we need to act quickly and do a number of things. 
So tell us a bit about your Deep Transformation Network. Yes, well, um, really that arises from this recognition that we are all interconnected. And there's so many people around the world. In fact, this is something that we can feel encouraged by. There's millions upon millions of people around the world who see that things are going wrong and they recognize that something is profoundly wrong. And they oftentimes feel very isolated because people around them are part of that consensus trance that we were talking about earlier. And so they go, well, there's nothing much I can do. And so oftentimes people will be working on one particular thing. And that's just great, whether it's, um, it can be, uh, say, activism, political or environmental activism, or it can be kind of spiritual growth, or it can be community connection. All those things are critical. But we can only get to the transformation we need when we're realizing that we're all part of, of this deeper systemic shift and tying all those different elements together. So the idea behind this deep transformation network is basically to allow anybody who recognizes that we need a deep transformation society to start to build part of a community, a global community to share these ideas and to actually work together to realize how deeply interconnected all these transformations are within our society. So one beautiful thing about this network, which has only just started a few months ago, it's already had got well over a thousand people in it and people um, joining every day. And there's kind of conversations that take place, some live conversations with different pioneering thought leaders. And then there's um, other um, group conversations and shared articles and online all, all kinds of stuff happening on this platform. The idea is partly to actually each of us get a sense of community, get a sense of being part of something bigger. So that can actually lead to really a, a, a wonderful feeling of um, almost liberation. It's not me alone trying to change the world. It's like me with all these other people it can open our minds to all these other possibilities. It also leads to this ability to synergize that whole notion of mutually beneficial symbiosis. People can share ideas. Other people say, oh, that relates to something else over here. And we can build a sense of this transformation that's actually possible. Yeah, you know, our, our theme for this edition of All Creation is restoring connective tissue. And yeah. I really see the Deep Transformation Network as a form of connective tissue, connecting people in the here and now all around the globe around this vision for a future. So also connecting us, hopefully, to a better future. So I want to thank you for all the work you're doing with that. I've joined the network and I found it challenging, inspiring. Uh, at the last Tuesday group meeting that we had, mm. I got to get in a small group with a woman from the Bay Area and a woman from Johannesburg, South Africa. Wow. Uh, I never would have been able to do that otherwise. Yes. So, so that's fantastic. Wow. In the time that we have left, share a bit about what keeps you going. I know I've heard you say that you kind of live on the cusp of despair, just yes. by acknowledging all the pain and you know what could happen. And yet you call yourself a possibilitarian <laughs> right? and uh, you just plug away at doing what you see as possible to create a better world. What is, what is your spiritual source and what is helping you do this? Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for, for asking that. And um, yeah, I do feel that any of us now who look at where things are headed and look at the destruction taking place, 
not to mention the incredible inequalities in our, our societies around the world, it's very easy to fall into despair. Um, and I'm not one of those people who puts out a sense of false optimism. I don't say that, oh, you know, it's okay, you know, we can invest in renewables and we'll all be okay. We need to look very clearly at the recognition that we are headed, even with all the destruction taking place right now, to something even worse, unless we do this transformation. And even that transformation won't happen right away. And I feel into that. And I think we need to recognize that to have those feelings is actually a part of what it is to be alive on this earth today and to be connected, to have that ren that we were talking about earlier, to realize this deep connection with all of life. But then when I find myself in that place, um, part of that feeling itself comes from that sense of an expanded identity that I am life. There's this amazing quote by uh, the 20th century humanitarian Albert Schweitzer that really resonates powerfully with me, that he, he basically said, I am life that wills to live in the midst of life that wills to live. And that recognition that it's not that I'm connected with life, but I actually am life, that really drives me, that gives me the sense of, I look then to life itself as a source of what does life want from me? And then the answer I get from that question is basically that, yeah, life does want me to feel into that pain enough to be energized, enough to care, enough to change what I'm doing in my life, to really struggle for life's own future. But life doesn't also want me to fall into some sort of pit of despair and get stuck there. It wants me to be engaged, to engage with others. And just like life has those networks we were talking about earlier, those mycorrhizal fungal networks underground that transport the nutrients for the trees. That's what I think life wants from all of us as humans to be our own network of transmitting these ideas to each other so that together as a group, we have the potential to turn things around. And that recognition that it's not about what I can do myself, but it's about how I can amplify and how I can resonate with the work of others and how as a system of transformation, we can make our civilization redirect. That's what gives me a sense of what's possible. Wow, that's great. Thank you so much. In your book, you note that the Blackfoot Native American people, when they greet each other, never ask each other, how are you? Mm -hmm. But rather, how are your connections? Mm -hmm. And I find that so powerful. And I find myself greeting myself yes. every day by just asking myself and paying attention to how are all my connections? Right. And I'm so grateful to you to have brought that to me. So Jeremy, I want to thank you again for this wonderful conversation. I encourage all of you who are listening to this podcast to check out the Deep Transformation Network. Check out Jeremy's works. He's all over YouTube. Uh, and we'll have links for you to follow. Again, Jeremy, thank you so much for taking this time to talk to our folks. Well, thank you, Tom. Thank you for this great conversation. And thank you for all these wonderful connections that you have just been uh, helping to co-create right now. Thank you. Thank you.